If you are unfamiliar with Andrew Sullivan, the New York Times boldly identifies him as one of the most influential journalists of the last three decades. His recently released collection, Out on a Limb, Selected Writing 1989-2021, covers topics such as masculinity, how subcultures are formed, the complexity of racism, political divides, the nature of sex, the power of stereotypes, and most importantly for us, civility as a requirement for a healthy republic. With such a resume, you can imagine our one-hour sit-down with Sullivan could go in many directions, and our conversation did. As a result, we thought it'd be wise to break up the conversation and provide many introductions to diverse topics. We first introduce Andrew Sullivan and then sit back and we enjoyed the ride. Ready to jump in? Welcome to the Winsome Conviction Podcast. My name is Tim Mielhoff. I'm a professor of communication here at Biola University in La Mirada, California, and also the co-director of the Winsome Conviction Project with my good friend and colleague, Rick Langer. And I'm also, uh, as Tim mentioned, a professor at uh, Biola University, the director of the Office of Faith and Learning, and uh, we work together doing the Winsome Conviction podcast, and one of our special treats in doing that is talking to some absolutely wonderful guests. And today we have with us Andrew Sullivan, who's one of the most uh, provocative social and political commentators of our day. He's been the former editor of the New Republic, founding editor of the Daily Dish, has been a regular writer for the New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic Times, Newsweek, New York Magazine, Sunday Times, Weekly Dish. I'm not sure what all else, but <laughs> he's written a lot. I have read a lot of your stuff mm-hmm. uh, for the last 30 years or so. It's been an absolute delight, and so it's a privilege to be able to meet you. Well, thank you. In today's argument culture, we're quick to label people. We put them into kind of prefigured categories. And Sullivan, I think, wisely wants to push against our propensity to label people and asserts that most of the people we'll meet are actually completely uncategorizable. Let me just ask you a question at the outset. We we live in a culture that is full of labels. And so we all quickly label people, we identify them, we kind of plop them in a box. So when I come to talk about Andrew Sullivan, uh, you seem to be a bit of a category buster. You're a conservative (laughs) Catholic journalist who served as a columnist for the New York Magazine. You've written a book called Virtually Normal, Advocating for Gay Marriage, but you've also written a book called The Conservative Soul. You're gay, but you've expressed doubts about the transgender movement, particularly youth gender transitions, as well as doubts about anti-racists like Ibram X. Kendi, critical race theory, wokeness, So it's probably fair to say you don't exactly fit conveniently into most of our major categories these days. (laughs) So tell us just a little bit about what makes you tick, who you are, you know, how how you came to the views that you have. I hate the idea that humans are being herded like sheep into little paddocks mm-hmm. uh, where you are now you are now a wokey you are now a you are now a, you know a, a, a social conservative or you are now uh, an evangelical or you are a, uh, a lefty liberal or whatever these these things are complicated there are people who have very left-wing politics have very conservative cultural habits themselves there are some there, there are people on the, the opposite side. Most of the really interesting people in history, I think, are completely uncategorizable yeah. mm. uh, and have been many things at different times. And we also are, we're also 
dynamic beings, so we live through a continuum so that we will change as humans. We, as, and we will be affected by different environments and we'll be affected by things that happen to us. So at any moment, we're also going to be in flux ourselves. We develop, we grow, I hope we grow. Um, and so I think the goal is to get past those things and to look at people as an individual. I, I teach communication classes as part of what I do at Biola University, and I love that. I love being curious about a person's past. The Harvard Negotiation Project says one of the biggest mistakes we make is we, we trade conclusions with each other, but we never share how we arrived at the conclusion. So I love the fact of what you're saying is this is a, a winding road. And for me, not just to be so eager to put a label on you, but more to get the backstory, I think is a good word in today's society where we're just desperate to put people in categories. Yes, and we're desperate to put them also in hierarchies so that the people above this level can be bashed. People below this level can't be bashed. But in fact, you know, let's, let's talk about someone super privileged. Mm. We don't know that person's life. I don't know whether they grew up in a horrible home, lonely. Wealthy people, kids of wealthy people can be bloody miserable. Mm -hmm. um, and... I don't know what issues they've dealt with. Maybe they have addiction questions. Maybe they, they are very insecure about, I mean, all sorts of things. That they, that they look powerful and strong on the surface does not mean that they are. I learned this the hard way when I went to college. Um, college. I went to Oxford on a scholarship, and I was very much not the classic Oxford Boris Johnson picture <laughs> although I knew him and we were there together actually oh really uh and because I he went to eat and all these people went from these very t and I I was the first one in my family to go to college at all mm. and so I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder and I once made a disparaging remark about one of these toffs uh one of these snooty champagne drinking <laughs> rich upper-class rah-rah boys that we all thought were pathetic and stupid. And, mm. and a friend of mine, the person I was saying this with, said, you know, I went there too, you know. Uh, mm. You don't, you, why you, you don't know mm. who these people really are. And they can be terribly vulnerable too. And I think the point is to, to, to see past those things. Isn't that the, I mean, that's the point of not being prejudiced, right? That's what mm. it really means. Not being bigoted means not ascribing to someone something that is superficially true about them but doesn't capture them at all as a human being. Yeah. Normally in a way to dismiss them or to categorize them in a way that you don't have to think about them anymore. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what we're asked. I think that's what a... I think, I, I think we can go through a life like that and partly it's human nature to generalize because you learn through life. That's what evolution did. If we didn't learn to generalize, we would all be dead by now. Um, that's what we had to do as tribal hunter-gatherers. We had to discriminate between friend and foe and all the rest of it. We had to make these simple assumptions. But now we have to kind of move a little bit past that. Even with all of our faults and struggles, Sullivan thinks of America as an experiment that has never been attempted before in human history a country filled with different ethnicities and races, different languages, and a variety of religious and political beliefs. Yet despite all these differences and possible tensions, America is a treasure that we need to protect. But how? In the next segment, Sullivan shares the secret to a healthy democracy, insights we need to embrace and practice in our current divided country.
thinking of a 60 Minutes interview you did with Scott Pelley, November 12, uh, 2021, and you said there were two keys to democracy, debate and compromise. <laughs> and boy, we just don't hear that enough. I almost wanted to add a third based on what you just said, compassion. But you, you said this, you said the American Constitution was set up for people who can reason and argue and aren't afraid of it, and then reach compromises. The whole thing is designed that way. And if you're in a tribe, and all that matters is the victory of your tribe, then you can't make it work. Can you elaborate on a little bit of what you might mean by tribalism, and then the need for compromise and the need for good debate? I think you begin a democratic society by accepting there are people in the society with whom you're going to profoundly disagree, because it's a free society. And so people are going to have different views. They're always going to have different ways of life. And the job of us in the society, in a free society, is to live and live with other people, right? To find a way to live with people. And that will inevitably mean compromises of your interests, of their interests. And it will also, to some extent, maybe tread on ground that's emotional. That's difficult. Mm. We're asked as democratic citizens to overcome our emotion, or at least to think, get through it, and to talk reasonably with one another. And then to come to compromises that don't really satisfy anyone completely, yeah. but are enough to get us keep it, keep going. The alternative mm. is to end a free society altogether and to coerce everybody. That can't be done. Right now we're in a position where the two sides, and they've become two sides, have become emotionally, psychologically separate. They're not talking to each other at all. Mm. They are virtue signaling to themselves how great a tribalist they are, how... How, how big a social justice warrior this person is or how big a Trump supporter this person is. But that's not getting us anywhere. Mm. So you have, and so what you see is a Congress that becomes completely dysfunctional because it can't actually, it can barely pass a budget because they hate each other so much. Yeah. Uh, and you've got to come to the point where you love your country more than you hate the other side. Oh, my and, goodness. Can you say that again, Andrew? <laughs> well, I think you've got to come to the point where you love your country more than you hate the other side. Mm. And I fear that we have slipped past that. Yeah. And I'm an immigrant here, right? So I, I, I've, watched, <laughs> I've watched this. I, and I feel sometimes I have to tell Americans, do you understand what an amazing place you have here? Mm. What this extraordinary system has achieved? Yes, it's got flaws. Of course it's got flaws. Yes, some of those go deep into our past. We, need, we must confront them. But get some perspective, guys. Would you rather live in China? Would you rather live in Russia? Uh, there, are, there are still vibrancy here mm. and diversity more than anywhere else. And, it's, and it's, it's an experiment that has never been attempted before in human history which is to say, not a city, but an entire country that contains dozens of profoundly different ethnicities and races, mm -hmm. even some different languages, plenty to begin with of immigrants, black, white, brown, everything in between, uh, complete variety of religious views and political views, and somehow it's hung together. Not only is it hung together, it's turned out to be the most prosperous and free country mm -hmm. in the history of the world. So, so can you please calm down a minute before just tearing this whole place down as a function of white supremacy? 
or regarding it as being taken over by a bunch of communist lefties who are going to destroy your way of life. <laughs> and calm down, <laughs> realize that neither of those things are really true, or at least mm. they may have parts of truth to them, um, but that it's much better for us to get along. You know, I, I, I look at China, you look at how it's responded to COVID, you look at what's happened to Russia, uh, and those are two great powers, two, two rivals of our powers, and I, 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 their systems are failing. Mm. People talk about China as this great rise. It is, it is, it is nowhere near. Its political system is incredibly vulnerable. Look at what it's going through now, this insane zero-COVID policy, which is the fixation of a dictator for life that is killing their economy. Or look at the absurdity of Putin's Russia, where they're creating this total Potemkin war on their screens while they're barely able to occupy Ukraine. Uh, We have lots of problems. The vast, large numbers of our problems, we are making ourselves. Mm. It, it seems like it has become a virtue to point out America's vices. In other words, this has become a cottage industry, or perhaps even more than that. Mm. It seems particularly robust in academia, but obviously it spreads to the rest of the, of the, the world. I, I feel like Part of what's happened with that is that we, if we want to bring up some of the positives as you have just done, it is almost like we have polarized our discourse to the point that that means you're denying every negative. Mm. And it, it's like you've ended up creating a bank account from which you can only make a withdrawal, but you can't make a deposit. <laughs> so I feel kind of hopeless sometimes mm. in that regard. Do you have any thoughts about that, of making this... How do we make deposits in the American account, so to speak? Well, let's take the uh, 1619 Project, which was a New York Times magazine, grand production, designed for high schools. Uh, They did a big song and dance about it. Um, And it essentially re-described the founding of the United States as the arrival of first slaves, re-described the United States as a slaveocracy at its core, described capitalism as a million extension of, the, of the, the realm of slavery, argued that the United States only sought independence from Britain because it wanted slavery, not freedom, argued that no white people contributed to the benefit of African Americans in 400 years. Uh, and when you said, come on, this is, this is extraordinarily distorted, they say, well, you're a racist. You don't care about the fact that there were these horrifying facts about, human, about American history, that there was horrifying levels of physical insecurity of African Americans. I mean, for so many years, I mean, I, I mean that even when they're not slaves, there is a level of physical insecurity, the lynching and murder that took place and violence in places like Tulsa as, as recently as 1920. I think what you have to say is this. This country has an unbelievably difficult and dark past in some respects. It does. It is our duty, actually, to remind ourselves of that and to do good scholarship that helps bring it to light. Mm. And it helps, like, like new scholarship about the Tulsa Massacre, new scholarship that helps us understand exactly how slaves were treated in various parts of the South. All of this is to be welcomed. Uh, but to define the entire country by that, 
is a distortion. It's true of America that this is part of its original sin. It is also true that America was the first country to really throw that system off, Mm. that pioneered the ideas that defeated it. And it is an America in which hundreds of thousands of people died, sacrificed their lives to get rid of that institution. Overwhelmingly white Americans who faced death and lost their lives to protect the rights of black Americans. Can we just remember that for a minute? That is, a, that is something yeah. remarkable to be aware of. And, and again, it's not, or I look at my own situation. I'm a, you know, a homosexual, right? Uh, and the United States treated homosexuals pretty horribly for a very long time. There's a new book just coming out called Secret City, which is, details the 1950s in Washington, in which there was a systematic purge of every person deemed to be, thought to be, or associated with homosexuals under Eisenhower and under Truman. It was a purge of tens of thousands of people serving their country. Mm. Not just purged, but ruined, humiliated. The suicides... The deaths of gay men in, in Washington, D.C., the death the suicide rate in that city went up in that period when they were persecuting people. Now, I've lived through a lifetime where I've also seen this country deal with the, the crisis of AIDS, but I've also seen this extraordinary attempt by some of us and by other people to have a constructive debate. But how do we fit in here? How, what's the real solution? How do we integrate gay people? Make them, include them into our families and our society more effectively? Um, in a way that is a compromise and is, doesn't affect your rights, will not hurt you in any way. That's what, and we achieved it remarkably quickly. Hmm. Well, thanks a ton for joining us, Andrew. We uh, are grateful for you uh, tuning in on uh, the Winsome Conviction podcast. We'd love to have you subscribe at Apple Podcasts or uh, Spotify or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And also check us out at uh, winsomeconviction.com to see some of the resources we make available to you for help making our discourse uh, as a nation, as a church, more civil, more loving, and more productive. So thank you for joining us today.